0: And welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von and I am here with my co-host, Irena Victoria Massimino, and our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. We are very honored and very lucky today to be joined by Fadi Koran, the campaign director at Avaaz, where he leads their global human rights work. Uh, We are very thankful that he was able to take off time from his very, very busy schedule to record with us today, and we know it's going to be a very productive conversation about what's going on currently in Israel-Palestine. I'm going to hand the um, podcast over to Irena at this point, and she's going to give a longer introduction of Fadi. But thank you, Fadi. I want to say thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be
1: with you. Thank you, thank you, Fadi. Thank you, elisa So, Fadi, it's a pleasure to to be with you here. So, thank you so much. Well, Fadi Kuran is a campaign director at Avaaz, a 65 million-person strong global movement mobilizing for change. He leads Avaaz's global human rights work with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa, as well as a vast anti-disinformation efforts, with a focus Mm. on investigating influence operations and pushing for social media platforms accountability. He also leads efforts focused on building transformative leadership across the Middle East, more broadly, with a focus on community organizing in Palestine. Fadi is also an entrepreneur in the alternative energy field, where he has founded two companies, bringing wind and solar energy. Fadi has appeared in the New York Times, New York Times, NPR, The Guardian, Time Magazine, The Financial Times, and other media outlets. And you can follow Fadi at, in Twitter at Fadi Quran. So we'll say it again at the end of our podcast. So thank you, Fadi. Your your biography is so interesting. So I hope we can go a little bit through it while we talk. Yeah, me too. But before yes, but before that, I'd like to mention a piece of news that probably Fadi will enlighten us a little bit more. Uh, Mohammed Al kord and Muna Al kord two uh, very influential people in the neighborhood of jay jarai in jerusalem were arrested east jerusalem were arrested um last night Fadi, can you give us the time difference uh doesn't make it fully sure for me as i'm located in argentina i think muna as you mentioned uh before uh recording was uh, released but we don't know we don't have any news about uh mohammed yet right is that correct
2: uh, yes that's that's correct And, you know, first of all, thank you for for the wonderful introduction and thank you for the just really important work uh, that you're doing, you know, and especially bringing attention to genocide and genocide prevention. I think many people often assume that this is something that can never happen again, won't ever happen again. But in fact, what we see day after day is that we are usually, you know, one or two steps away from, from mass genocide. And to, to jump into the case of Muhammad and Muna al-Kurd, for, for those listening who don't know who they are, they are, uh, you know, Muhammad, uh, Muna is 23 years old, and Muhammad is, is about 25 years old, and they have been speaking out and documenting attacks on their home. In the, in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem since the day they were born. I mean, there are videos of them at like five and six years old carrying little cameras and taking, uh, you know, documenting the attacks happening against them. They've lived their lives continuously facing dispossession, facing ethnic cleansing, facing threats, facing dehumanization. And, you know, you would assume that children living in that type of situation would grow up to be fearful, they would want to leave, they would give up. And in fact what they've done is they have created global awareness for their neighborhood. They have now millions of followers between them across the Middle East and the world. And this morning, Palestine time, the Israeli intelligence forces and the Israeli police barged into their homes. Muhammad wasn't home, but Muna was home and they arrested her. And they arrested her for claims that she was um, creating public instability. Um, just because she's speaking up on social media about the threat of this position that she's facing in her house. They didn't find Muhammad, but they you know, gave a summons for him. And of course he can't leave his sister alone and knowing the type of threats and violence that could mm-hmm. be faced in Israeli prison. So he um, uh, basically went to the police station. Palestinian people mobilized her father and a lot of Palestinians in Jerusalem went put their chairs in front of the police station and said, we're not leaving. Wow. And Palestinians wow. began organizing protests across the country to say that, you know, don't don't keep them there. So just um, an hour ago from when we're having this call, Muna was released. And Mohammed is still being interrogated. But my hope is that the, the Israeli occupation understands that society will mobilize and march in the streets if they keep him. And so hopefully they'll release him uh, to avoid that trouble.
1: Question: I read uh, uh, in, actually Elisa sent me the news this morning about their their them being in captivity, and it's a piece of news from Al Jazeera, and it says that half of their house was occupied in 2009. Can you explain us a little bit about that and and light our audience as well on how come a, half of the house is occupied by settlers actually?
2: Yeah, and this is. You know, you know, I don't want to go through the the full history of the conflict um, on on this podcast because I think we'd we'd have to make it into a Netflix series if that was the case.
0: <laughs> Which is a great but, idea. <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe maybe one day maybe this can be the the little seed. Yeah, um, we'll have but, it
0: back anyway. Yeah. So.
2: Thank you, thank you, but. I think to to explain this family's case mm-hmm. which I think is actually a beautiful uh, not beautiful painful but simple explanation of the larger case Palestinians are facing um, broadly uh, what what we feel and what a lot of legal experts say is settler colonialism mm-hmm. right essentially another on, on people again without going into the details I'm just speaking how we as Palestinians yeah. experienced yeah. it another people coming to to our land coming to our homes telling us they belong to them and that we are inferior and then seeking to push us out mm-hmm. now for for the family for the al kurd family specifically they were forcefully displaced from their original homes and um, that you know are on the western side of jerusalem and in that eviction they ended up living in east jerusalem the un came and said for for their families and other families said, okay, we're going to build you new homes on these lands that are, are lands that belong to to the government. And so the, the UN at the time, uh, between 1948 and 1967, um, Jordan the, was kind of had mandate control over Palestine. They were the government here. So Jordan worked with the UN to build these homes for these Palestinian refugees. Um, and of course in 1967, Israel occupied all of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Now, Israel has a strategy, um, and it's it's some refer to it as the 80-20 strategy. They want all you know, they want Palestinians to be pushed out of Jerusalem, now East Jerusalem, and they want there to be a demographic change in the city so that it's 80 percent Jewish Israelis and 20 percent or less Palestinians. Mm Part of that strategy is what settlers do, is they come with claims. So the Al-Kurd family cannot come and say, we want to be allowed back into our homes that we were displaced from in 1948. Israel does not right. allow that. But Israel does allow settlers to come and make claims to land that, you know, they say previously historically belonged to uh, you know, the Jewish people. Now, the land in Sheikh Jarrah, there's no evidence You know, the only evidence that exists, and actually they even went back to the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, so papers that are over 100 years old, and they brought evidence of who the land ownership there. But how did the Kurd family in Sheikh Jarrah ended up in this split situation is that Israeli courts are not just courts, right, and Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to Palestinians they they're, they're very biased and a lot of studies have been done on this so they take whatever documents the settlers give and ignore what documents mm-hmm. the palestinian families give and the settlers and the israeli government have worked together to use this policy to lay claim to the house that the al-qurd family currently lives in saying that given it was built by the jordanian government and the UN refugee and um, you know kind of bodies This is now state land, this belongs to us, so these families need to be kicked out. So the settlers then came and forcefully took half of the home of the al Kurd family. And their goal right now is to actually take all of the homes in this neighborhood in Jerusalem of Sheikh Jarrah. And this is why the tension has been rising in Palestine, Mm -hmm. because for us, it's a red line. We will not be dispossessed again. Um, So I know that's a long explanation, but I hope it summarizes
3: things as well.
0: It's great. Can I ask a question about how, um, how that works when, when settlers take half of a home and then suddenly a family whose home is being invaded essentially has to live with this other family from, I think I read that in the El Kurd family home, it is people from Brooklyn have claimed their home. So how does that work do they did, did the Brooklynites build a wall and a new kitchen or like do they have to share a kitchen how have they been living together for all these years Irene and I before the podcast were thinking what would we do if this happened to us and suddenly our homes uh had to be split how would we even get on with 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 our with these people who are claiming our home as their own so do you know how that was wor- I mean Just how did it work spatially? Yeah, materially, right? Materially,
1: right. In a pragmatic way. Right. It's just as if someone came. I mean, I live in a small place. I don't think we can share with another family. Mm. But thinking that, excuse me, that someone will use half of your kitchen or Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how it works. So we were wondering that. And I also wanted to say that my first thought is how peaceful Palestinians are in that sense, because I, I, I don't yeah. know.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, the anger that that would bring into an individual, it's tremendous. I think someone occupying half of your house and I don't know, I can't imagine them being peaceful in the way of, of I mean, the settlers, right? <clears throat> I can't imagine them being peaceful in the way they live. Maybe they are. But how how does it work materially?
2: yeah it's i mean it's it's a good question and to you know to be quite frank i don't know how they deal with it and i don't know how they've dealt with it i know there it's kind of two separate homes so they've they've literally split the the place in half um so they i don't you know they don't share a kitchen or stuff like that but they do share an entrance um and how how people can live with that i mean yeah i think any family um just imagining, you know, I'm trying to imagine now somebody coming and saying, I'm going to take your kitchen, your bathroom and your living room and they're, they're mine now, even though you've lived here for 50 years right. or even 10 right. years. And the truth is, this is imposed yeah. through yeah. you know, violent military oppression, mm-hmm. right? The, the Palestinians okay. here are really um, outpowered. Uh, compared to the Israeli military. Mm. Just yesterday, um, you saw the settlers, they were pointing, uh, you know, it's not just that there's a settler from Brooklyn living in their house, there are also now settlers surrounding them. There are Palestinian Mm. houses, their neighbors, these houses have already been taken by settlers. So the settlers were basically telling the, the Israeli military, the border police, you know, this person, this person and this person, they're bad people, you know, and they were pointing at Mona Al Kurd and Mohammed and so forth. And, and you know, yesterday, so if you just look at the images, right, you can see how this is sustained. It's not just sustained because, you know, the Palestinian people have, like, accepted it. It's sustained no. because there no. is a boot on the neck of the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. And the arrest of Mona and Mohammed al-Kurd today is, is that type of suppression, right, threat, that you raise your voice, even if you make a social media presence. We're ready to come for you. And I'm sure they threaten them uh, because I've been in that experience where I've been arrested by Israeli intelligence. Hmm. And they will say, like, if you continue to fight this, you know, takeover of your land, and uh, we know where your mother lives. If, you know, if you continue to do this, we know where you work and who you work with. If you continue to do this, we will make sure that you can't travel. You know, the, the threats will continue. And sometimes they'll execute on them. Like, you know, for me, My mother was actually hurt, for example, where where soldiers stomped on her uh, and broke her arm um, after one of the protests that I led, you know. So this is the way that Palestinians are forced um, to live the status quo, that just high level of violence and surveillance.
0: Wow. Can I ask, can I follow up on on your mom? I just want to make it clear. So you were leading a protest... And then afterwards, the I.O.F. the I.D.F. I.O.F. came and like attacked her in her house and stomped on her. Is that right? Or did they do it during the protest? Or was it few days? After? I'm just very interested in the details of how they how they yeah. operate how the terror system works.
2: Yeah. So so in this specific case, what happened is. We had led freedom rights which is a tactic that was used by the u.s civil rights movement mm-hmm, <clears throat> mm-hmm. you know human rights watch recently spoke you know there is apartheid there is mm-hmm. discrimination in yeah, Palestine yeah. that's it's a legal fact now you know after human rights watch and israeli organization Salem, you know it's nobody mm-hmm. can argue that right so what we did was we got on uh, buses that are only reserved for settlers Palestinians can't use them Uh, that go to jerusalem and you know our vision was that we were going to show the world and these buses were partially run by a french company called violia so we the goal was to put pressure on the israeli government and on the french company long story short we got on the buses and the you know the military quickly came they escorted the buses to a checkpoint and they told us to get down from the bus and what, you know, our position was, again, the same nonviolent tactic that was used by the U.S. Freedom Riders
3: mm-hmm.
2: in the civil rights movement was, you know, we're not going to violently fight you, but we're going to be completely nonviolent and be civil disobedient. So we refused to move from our chairs. And I was kind of one of the leaders and I was, you know, I, they tried convincing me and threatening me to go down. I did not know at the time that my mother was, um, she had come to where the checkpoint is with a lot of activists Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, to basically uh, protest. And essentially what happened was, um, you know, my mother told them, you know, that's my son. My son is there as they were pulling me out of the car. And that's when the soldiers, you know, were like, that's your son. And they they threw her on the ground with me watching and, you know, started stomping on her. So that's what what happened.
0: So that happened recently. How is your mom doing?
2: No, this was this was about eight years ago. Oh, eight about years recently.
0: ago. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well she's
2: she's better now. Okay, uh, good. good.
0: Good. I'm glad. You know, this just reminds me some of my work, and I don't want to throw a red herring into our discussion, do you know? And so we can just we can just step on past it. But I do feel the need always when I'm Learning about what 's happening uh, to Palestinians um, and particularly more recently, to point out you know the similarity between the techniques of violence here and and genocidal violence, so I work on um genocidal atrocities and this kind of use of i mean it 's a typical terror technique right to try and target. Political activists by uh, threatening their families—that's an old technique. But also the way you just described this, where they turn to on your mother because they find out she's your mother, and you're you're the one who's doing the you're the freedom rider, and in front of you they brutalize her without you being able to help her. Um, that's a kind of violence. I call it a life force atrocity because it targets like our feelings of responsibility and loyalty, um, and our roles. Right, the roles that we play for one another within families. So to me, that's very genocidal violence. And this is something that Irina and I pointed out in our statement on what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah. That in some ways, it's Sheikh Jarrah seems more genocidal to me on the face of it right it's more evidence of genocide than even the bombing of gaza because because that kind of war crime can be simply a war it can happen in war right um, so it's a little more nebulous there but when you have people being abused to right when when people are being instrumentalized by the state um, to abuse their family members by making them watch, right? That sort of thing is very much the, it's, it just takes on a very genocidal tone. And so this is something that Irina and I have been open about. And the term itself is very problematic you know, in, in its use and, and, and it opens one up to all sorts of accusations. And so I don't want to impose it on our conversation here, but it is something I do want to raise um, because that's a terrible story that you tell of what happened to your mom and the fact that they did it simply because they knew you were there and she's related to you and they probably assumed it would hurt hurt you very deeply also to have your mother um terrorized in that fashion without being able to do anything to help her
2: yeah i mean i i totally hear what you're saying mm-hmm. and i i do think um, you know the term genocide mm-hmm. was, was defined after a certain historical context, right? When the right. genocide against the, the Armenian people happened, for example, yeah. the, the term wasn't still mm-hmm. there. We also know that genocide before the actual genocide happens, in terms of the actual, you know, mm-hmm. acts of murder, there is a spectrum of, right. of steps that exactly. lead to it, including the dehumanization, mm-hmm. including this this attack on, I believe you called it like the sources of life. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that and you know the two points I want to make here are what we're facing in Palestine, I think is something that has a lot of similar factors or variables mm-hmm. to the experience of apartheid, the experience of colonialism, and yes, to some experiences of genocide mm-hmm. that have happened historically, but it's happening in a modern context today where it may not be fully. Uh, you know, it may not fit the terms that were created to describe previous atrocities. Yes. Um, but it has certain tastes from them. And maybe one day, you know, in the future, when Palestine is free mm-hmm. um, or, you know, I hope this doesn't happen. But when Palestinians are facing even more severe violence, not, yeah. maybe a new term will be created to, to define what we're going on that fits the modern context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to end by saying that we have seen what I would call genocidal undertones Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. escalating. They've happened historically in the Palestinian experience, you know, the the ethnic cleansing during the Nakba, what's in Sheikh Jarrah. Some some have termed it sociocide, uh, which is the, you know, like a a new term that that focuses on trying to destroy a society. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, even, even the violence, I called it, and, you know, a lot of people... I didn't use this example lightly, but when um, I saw settlers attacking Palestinian stores and properties and pinching people in the street, and I remember the the images I saw from the the Night of Broken Glass Mm -hmm. um, in Germany, you know, it... Like again I don't want to compare scale my goal is not here to to equate what happened exactly. um, you know, 6 million Jewish people were murdered during the holocaust I admit that and that should never happen again mm. um, so it's not about comparing scale but it's about comparing language attitude and forms of violence
3: mm-hmm. yes. and in
2: those two ways you know it, it was similar you know no I don't think anybody can can claim otherwise yeah
1: yeah Certainly. we agree I want to we agree on that we i wanted to add also that you know there's we lose a little bit of what is occurring in these discussions and it always happens whether it's genocide whether it's ethnic cleansing whether it's this new term etc and reality is that there is a destruction of the palestinian identity is occurring in palestine
3: Mm -hmm.
1: right and that's i think Whether we can call it genocide or ethnic cleansing or the new term you mentioned of sociocide Sociocide. Sociocide or something. I mean, I'm not very fond of new terms because they're not, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so they're not legally, (laughs) they have no legal meaning. (laughs) And eventually, nobody will be holding court uh, guilty of sociocide, right? Right. But anyhow, the the, the the point is that for since the Nakba, this Palestinian identity is being destroyed, not only the individuals with, you know, those who were taking their lives and the refugees, etc., but the identity of the Palestinians in their ancestral land. And I think that's what people have to understand. You know, it's not only about the Jake Jarrah violence or what happened in Gaza now or what happened in 2014. It's all these years of history of trying to eliminate whatever is Palestinian in, in the land. Mm-hmm. That's what needs to be analyzed. You know, you can't divide what happened now to what happened 70 years ago, 73 years ago with the Nakba. So I think that's um, that's something important one has to have in mind when... Thinking of you know, and again, I like Elisa said, we don't want to impose any terms because we know the consequences of the terms. But at least apartheid, which is a legal term, has been recognized uh, internationally. And um, so, I wanted to ask you, Fadi, since we're talking a little bit of this personal perspectives, and we can go back to the political later if you want. What was your life growing up, you know, like how how was your everyday life growing up, since you mentioned, you know, Muna and Mohammed living in this permanent occupation situation of, you know, the settlers going to their house, actually, and living along with settlers for the majority of their conscious life. How was it for you in particular, if you want to talk about it a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh... You know, I I need to take a take a breath because I've actually been um, like revisiting, um, you know, experiences in in my life to kind of think about what stuck with me. And Mm. some of the things I, I, you know, are really in my heart um, today, especially with what's happening in Jerusalem or one of my first memories as a child was. Uh, my grandmother telling me to run and hide under the bed Mm. as I heard these soldiers loudly knocking on the doors of our house and kind of trying to break through them to arrest my father. And I I remember hiding under the bed, watching my father, you know, say, like, goodbye, not knowing when he will be released. Um, And I, you know, one one of the stories that my mother speaks to um, that is also, like, stuck, you know, I, I didn't see this, but that is stuck in my head, is that, you know, Israeli prisons, and this is we're talking about in, in the you know early 90s, um, Israeli prisons and how long Palestinians would spend in there, there was no justice, there was no clear legal process. So a story, you know, that from my mother is that she never knew when my dad would be released. So mm-hmm. one day, the, the lawyer managed through God knows how, and he was released. And, you know, she was, she had just had me, she was carrying me, and my dad got home before my mother got home she was she had, was work and so when my mom came in and she looked and she saw my father sitting on the chair smiling at her she was so tired and so not expecting that my father would be released that she was like oh my god i'm dreaming like i, I need to get some bread and so she just looked and kept walking and then she went to do the the dishes and then my dad was like what's the matter with this woman so he stood up oh, wow. and went and he put his hand on her shoulder and she fainted, uh, realizing that he was actually there. And so that's you know, that's the situation I was born in. And then as I grew wow. older, you know, across the street from where I live is land that belongs to my grandmother. And uh, my great grandfather, her father had, been, you know, planted vineyards, uh, you know, grape, grape trees. And right now there's a settlement there that has taken my grandmother's land. And there's actually wine uh, called Sagot wine. It was visited. The winery was visited by the former U.S. Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, and that's wine from land stolen from our family. Oh my but God. The reason it is, you know, and, and it's sold at Carrefour and it's sold in other places. But the reason I mentioned this is my childhood was actually where I played soccer, football, um, is right across from that settlement. And my school, the settlement overlooks my school. So another I have is specifically being shot at by the settlers and Israeli soldiers as we were playing soccer. And, you know, people on that team uh, were injured on my team. And the goalie, not not my age, but the goalie for the official team where I played soccer, was murdered uh, by by Israeli uh, bullets. And so, as I got older, this is what led me to to become politically active. A lot of people assume that, you know, this is the, the, I would call it a libel, that the Israeli propaganda has succeeded in imposing on Palestinians, that people, you know, teach their children to hate Israel, or that people teach their children to, you know, be be like violent. But the truth is, is, what taught me at that young age to be like very angry with the occupation was seeing all that death, was seeing my grandmother's heartache at, mm-hmm. at the trees and grapes that she planted with her father not being able to get there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then when I became active, you know, in at school, uh, you know, it was during the second intifada. And I, I remember, you know, us, you, you don't have a choice. You feel when you're young, you feel invincible mm-hmm. on one end
3: true Uh, and on
2: the other hand you just like injustice when you're young feels i think i think as we get older we kind of begin to adapt if we're not careful to injustice but when you're young and you see a tank driving up to your school shooting towards your like classmates you think you can be superman and like run at that tank and, and challenge it and that's what also happened to me right like when i was young i would get these you know black boxes that looked like because they put us under curfew. So they would not allow us to uh, leave our homes for long periods of times. And if anyone left to get bread, they would be shot at. Oh so one of the kind of experiences I remember is like going out and, and placing those in the streets uh, so that if they were coming close to the neighborhood, they would see them and they would um, you know, stay away. And it would give people enough time uh, to return. So, those are like some of the, the experiences. And I was fortunate at the end of my, uh, you know, I, w- I was privileged, honestly, because I had good grades um, and, and for other reasons that I managed to go and study in the, in the US. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was, you know, my, my childhood until 18 was kind of defined by those events uh, and by watching also a lot of friends being arrested, uh, by not being able to travel, this is, you know, especially between cities, you know, this Mm -hmm. is, I think another thing it's hard to explain, like all of you, and I've lived in the US, one of our favorite experiences is, if you live next to a beach or next to a forest or next to a nice park, nature, you can just drive out and go for a hike, drive to the beach. For Palestinians, a lot of us, we can smell the sea, we can Mm -hmm. see the shine on the sea. And yet there's this big wall between us and the sea, you know, that for many of us, our great grandparents own that land that's near the Mediterranean. And yet we cannot get there. So, you know, I know this is a, a lot, but this is the, the daily experience. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Is this for everyone, Fadi? I mean, every Palestinian has suffered similar situations.
2: I mean, I would say I would say that a lot of similarities, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, so. The statistics indicate that in the last 50 years, um, two thirds of Palestinian men have been arrested or detained at some time. So, so you know, so that means that the story, of, if I speak about my uncles or other family members being arrested, that's, you know, it's not just my family. Um, there are other families as well who faced similar situations. When I speak about seeing the the sea uh yeah you know palestinians that live in gaza currently they have the sea they're the only kind of remaining part of uh, the palestinians in the occupied territories that have but yeah the majority of palestinians can see the sea and you really need like a permit and good behavior and the majority of palestinians don't get permits yes um so so they have that experience the the violence living near settlements i would say again 60 percent of the west bank is area c and there are now over 200 settlements so i would say every palestinian has had that experience
3: Mm.
2: Mm. and and actually i don't want to i don't want to leave out a big group of palestinians more than actually half of the palestinian people that are refugees yeah and they're palestinians that now live in places like lebanon jordan syrian refugee camps in egypt some in iraq uh, that live in horrendous circumstances and they can't even return home they've been in these refugee camps for for seven decades and their experience of course they may not have experienced the settlements or the the kind of daily occupation of the violence but i would say their experience in, in many places is much worse yeah. than
3: what we feel yeah uh, i
1: i was in um, in the aida refugee camp and sometimes I try to explain to my students that refugee camps can, you know, that was built in 1949, right? In, uh, yeah. in Bethlehem, right? The Aida. Yeah. And I try to explain sometimes to my students that a refugee camp can last end, endlessly, mm-hmm. right? I mean, for, for 70 years, you can have, and it doesn't look as a traditional refugee camp, the, the image that one has with, tent, it, with tents or it's just, it has some buildings, et cetera. But, it's like a, it's families leaving being born there, being born as refugees. It's like a status that's inherited somehow, and leaving off charity permanently, because it's the help of small organizations that would give them schooling or etc. but it's just the naturalization of a status that is, that it's, you know, it's very decadent. Is that a word for a human person? With no access, I mean, they can't just leave and go and move somewhere else. They just, they're just just stuck there with no idea of what would happen to them in the future. And that's not only one case, right? There are many like that.
2: Yeah, you, you, I mean, you're 100% right. It's like it's—it's it's hard to explain. Again, there, there are so many things that are, like in this context, difficult to explain that I feel people can sympathize with, mm. but... You know, for the majority of Palestinians in the refugee camps, especially those in, in the occupied territories, they, they have keys to the homes that they were removed from. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they keep that hope that they will be, return. And on the other side of that hope is just a complete sense of abandonment that they have faced from the international community. Yes. They, they are stateless. Um, they are rightless, if that's if a that's mm-hmm. word. They have almost no rights. And how, how they go day by day, like I you know I, I was speaking to a colleague today, and I said, "You know, in the future, I think people are going to make the case of Palestinian resilience, uh, like special psychological study of how can generation after generation yes. be born in this circumstance and continue to resist and have hope when you know in reality, there are very few reasons for them to do so.
1: Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It it shouldn't be, though. Sorry, no, I was just going to say it shouldn't be taken that people have resilience. You know, I just, it's something that, I mean, nobody should be resilient to that situation. If I'm, I don't know if I'm being clear.
0: I think what you're saying, we talk about this, is no one should have to be. Resilient to such a situation. You know, the international community often praises resilience, like the resilience of Yazidi survivors of sexual enslavement by ISIS. You hear praises all the time of how resilient they are. Meanwhile, the international community isn't helping them in the IDP camps in northern Iraq. That's where we work. Um, there's very little services for them. Do you know, they've been there seven years. The international community has basically pulled out of the camps, and um, so these women who are so resilient are getting no help in the process yeah. of being so resilient. They're getting this sort of, you know, formal praise, but it's it's uh, empty. It's empty praise. It's
1: empty. Yeah, but that's I but way. I see empty. what
0: you're saying, Fadi, is that how you know somehow for for ten. I mean, how many generations would that be? Five generations in 70 years or something? Four to five generations. Palestinians in these, you know, permanent camps now, refugee camps and IDP camps, um, somehow managed to continue to, you know, have a social life, right? Have a life in common, you know, continue Palestinian cultural traditions and 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 continue the identity
2: yeah i mean it, it it's it's amazing and it's beautiful like i yeah. do i do want to nobody should have to live with circumstance but i think it is uh it is something that has deep beauty and a, kind of the mm-hmm. cultural aspect of it like i love that i love the embroidery and so forth yes what's what's interesting is that even that though comes under attack like uh, you know recently uh there was like an is you know israel palestinian embroidery was being marketed as like israeli cultural heritage uh, oh.
3: and,
2: and it's the same thing that happens with like a lot of different foods and a lot of different even the kufiya like louis vuitton recently took the palestinian kufiya design and put an lv on it and was selling it on their website Are oh, you kidding? Just,
1: i didn't know that wow
2: so you know that that stuff happens a lot but you mentioned the yazidi case and Mm-hmm. I think this is for, for our audience, I think this is a um, very important context that I'm sure you you both are aware of, but I, I always like repeating, which is that a lot of people oftentimes look at the Middle East, in fact, look at the world and see cases of extreme violence, and it's always separate. It's like mm. the violence against cities in Iraq here, the violence against Palestinians here, right. the violence against the Rohingya and Myanmar. And what we don't know is just like when, when you know, it, this is at least reported. When Hitler was thinking about the Holocaust, he said, "Who remembers the Armenian genocide? Yeah, exactly the the violence that happened." So, so you know, ISIS, which does believe in this kind of Islamo-fascist prototype mm-hmm. of ruling, you know. They part of, I'm sure, the reason that it was normalized for them to commit this type of of violence and these types of atrocities is that they looked at what was happening to the Palestinians and what was happening to people elsewhere. And they were like, well, this is allowed to happen internationally. We can build on that. And we know that in Myanmar, for example, Myanmar, uh, the Israeli military was one of the biggest exporters of weapons to to the regime in Myanmar. And I I believe it still is in the case. And and so when when violence happens in Palestine, when you see tactics used in, in Sheikh Jarrah, when you see drones with tear gas dropping tear gas, at, you know at, at a place here, it's like if you you can't fight for Palestinian rights if you're not fighting to protect the Yazidis, you can't protect uh, the Rohingya community if you're not fighting to protect Palestinians and ending arm exports to Israel. It's all interconnected, and all these oppressors that use this type of violence they learn from each other and they test the water for one another, you know, so it's, it's key to continue to see it holistically on that front, because I know a lot of this is what I'll end with is a lot of the audience here because I've, I've, you know, I've worked in international law, I've worked in the human rights spectrum. I have seen this consistently where you will have some of the brightest, best people in the world who will like be giving their all to fight a certain type of crime happening in, in Syria or Iraq. And like ignore Palestine because okay. it's too complicated mm-hmm. or the opposite right people who are very active on Palestine and don't look at other uh, pieces of oppression And I just want to say and I think this is this should be a core principle for everyone who's fighting against genocide and for human rights globally which is that in the world today if you want to fight oppression against palestinians you must fight oppression happening against the Yazidis and oppression happening against the rohingya and if you care about fighting the oppression happening to the Yazidis or to the rohingya or to the uyghurs or to african americans in the u.s you need to also fight the oppression happening against palestinians because it's all interconnected today and they like they test the waters for one another and they learn from one another we need to be learning from all these different forms of oppression and fighting it together. Because you won't succeed in your fight unless we all succeed in all of our our struggles.
0: Yeah. That's so important, and wow, that's and you said it so beautifully. That's sort of the core of the work that Irene and I, you and I do, right? Is is that principle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. that that these these are all interconnected struggles and yet we are working on them in a scattershot way right and we need we need all of us to be working together on these interconnected problems and sharing resources and sharing ideas and also developing a shared language with which we protest yeah. right and resist all of these violences um So I know exactly, exactly what you're talking about. And in fact, it's been very interesting. I have a little personal story here. Last year, I was at a a Black Lives Matter protest here in Philadelphia, um, where we were trapped in a, a highway, right on a highway, and then tear gassed while being trapped. And then some of us who were able to escape—I was with my 13-year-old daughter—who were able to escape, were then chased by the police, and we were continuously tear-gassed. So they weren't trying to disperse people. This was just punitive, you know. And, you know, and and then this—now, a year later— Um, At protests for free Palestine, right? What happened to us is raised as part of, you know, the way in which our um, police forces have been trained by the IDF and by Israel. So their tactics, they're using similar tactics. So it's just very interesting, once you start looking at your own situation critically, right, I think all of our listeners know, once you start looking at your own situation critically, you can find these these direct links between your life and the life of someone, you know, thousands of miles away, uh, if you know enough about it. And so in some ways, we're facing, you know, that, you know, in the United States, um, we're also facing part of the conflict that you're facing there in Palestine, right, Um, as a consequence of our close, the close links of of Israel and the United States. Yeah,
2: Um, I mean, you're, you're totally right. It is. Like, you know, I was, I was, I met with a delegation of members of the, you know, the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement and uh, people who were active in the U.S. on this front. And when we were talking, we were just sharing like lessons learned and even, I mean, you mentioned the tear gas example, but even some tactics such as the police driving in African-American neighborhoods with their lights on consistently. That's oh. a tactic that was developed by the Israeli military and Israeli border police wow. as a way of like always maintaining a level of presence and threat that were always there, and then it was introduced to to the U. S. Wow. So yeah, there's deep cooperation. And where I want to take this conversation though is to say, you know, the truth is is that the the different oppressive forces that exist, as as is said, are cooperating to create the world in a certain way. Mm. And oftentimes we see our collaboration as simply to fight that. But what I want to add is that I think by collaborating more closely, we can not only end the oppression, we can not only resist, but we can radically reimagine a much more Mm -hmm. beautiful world and create it. And I think that's the goal here. It's not just fighting against the oppressive forces. It's recreating the world and and how we, we dream about it. And I think the, the diverse views that we can bring together is going to be a visionary on that front. Um, and yeah. fortunately, it's it's changing. Like I I do see hope that it's possible uh, within the next few decades.
1: What, what you just said, Patty, is beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's, yeah, it's so beautiful. You put it so beautifully because sometimes you know. Elisa and I have a lot of these thoughts that we imagine a better world, uh, a podcast we, we, that we released today, actually. Um, we invited an Armenian, the, the Marina Machitarian, and she had such a message of love and hope and, and that we can actually build you know, a better world. Everything bad that happened to us. Uh, she was mentioning, and I'm trying to paraphrase her, I can't quote her exactly, but she said we can build it into something positive, right? And sometimes when one has that attitude towards the future, people tend to destroy it a little bit. People tend mm. to think that we have a rosy mind, right? That we are thinking too positively, etc. So I'm really happy to hear that from you living in such difficult circumstances, because I can have you know, sometimes I think that I have that mentality of a better future because my life is quite good. It's much better than the one of a Palestinian, of course. So um, it's nice to hear from someone who has experienced, you know, so much suffering from all of your life, you know, and your friends and your family and everyone near you has suffered somehow in a very profound and you know, like you said, the humanizing way. So I think to hear that from you is it's mm. wonderful. It's just really, really wonderful for me and I'm I think I'm sure I'm sure I'm speaking for Elisa as well. Absolutely. <laughs> so and I and you know, this is part of the work with you, like Elisa was mentioning before, is that we've We've actually, you know, covered so many conflicts in our podcast lately and we want to reproduce our work in other places as well. We want to work with the people, you know, mainly with the grassroots, with the people that bring change, with the survivors, with the victims, you know, that have suffered and try to build some hope for the future. Like you said, not only fight oppression, but, you know, find a way to build in a better humanity. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A so hundred 100- oh sorry go ahead no
0: please please yeah i was just going to say it's it needs to be like genocide prevention has to be a transformative process not simply um you know a um a resistance process there has to be also that transformative piece otherwise one is stuck constantly in resistance oppression resistance oppression resistance at some point there has to be a a transformation and that's that's sort of where we see genocide prevention playing a very important role
2: yeah, no, I mean, uh, 100% and let me just add the, just a line to that and I love the transformative. Uh, number one, you know, I do want to speak to the point you mentioned, Irene, which is like, yes, I think that's, that's the beauty of the time we're in, which is that somebody like, like yourself who, you know, who, who, who struggles and who has seen, I'm sure a lot of difficulties, but you live in Argentina, completely different circumstances than where I live in Palestine. And if we were to connect with you know, some of my friends in Brazil today and in India and in Myanmar, we, we can all imagine that better world, we can all see it. And yes, for some, it may seem more optimistic than others, but I think it's it's part of our shared connection as humans that we're capable of imagining that. And I do want to say that um, Steve, Steve Biko, who was a, mm. a well-known South African, uh, you know, political activist and thinker and, and visionary and kind of one of the founders of, of black consciousness. He has this line that I think is key for everyone fighting oppression to understand. And he he says the most powerful weapon, the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: the more I engaged on work in Palestine, the more I've realized. That, that is just so true, because if somebody can control your mind, can control, and I don't mean in a, like, you know, sci-fi way, but can control, <laughs> and, and like imagine the world and how you see yourself, and if you see yourself as inferior, and if you see your people as inferior, then you've lost the battle before you've even waged it. And so this, this call for a collective radical imagination of the future is not just about being hopeful or being optimistic or or being rosy it's actually the the oppressed people's most potent weapon Mm. for resistance because if you have that vision you know better what you're fighting for and how to to get to it and that's why i don't speak about this hope and this this radical reimagination as a you know kumbaya let's all (laughs) live together (laughs) uh, act of resistance because that's,
1: that's what it is. Yeah. Well, if you don't have any hope, you just give up. You know, yeah. I always put that, you know, the life of a prisoner, I worked in prisons a lot. I've been there, I, I go often, not now in pandemic, But, and I always say the only thing that a prisoner has is the future because the present is not nice. So you, mm. have, you have to hope that something better will come afterwards and you fight for that. If not, you give up, certainly so yeah we're not kumbaya for sure <laughs> I like that
0: speaking of which do you think we could talk now a little bit about where you see the future going with this struggle um, in Palestine you know one hears about a one state a two state solution um, what do you see happening what, what, what is this radical transformation um, that that we're, that we're heading towards right and fighting for
2: yeah so so here i want to actually give the audience first the available scenarios before i jump into you know what what is the optimal scenario because and this is going to be a bit more academic but i think that's what the audience should hear yeah so there is a scenario um which is the status quo and i call it the oppressive status quo this is where you know palestinians are under the boot of israeli occupation apartheid continues to get stronger, the Palestinian leadership um, is corrupt, you know, President Mahmoud Abbas and the PA, they are um, allies to the occupation, and so there is there is a real scenario that we continue under the status quo for decades to come, mm-hmm. and that's actually one of a big subset of Israeli politicians, that's their preference, including the upcoming prime minister, um, Naftali Bennett, who actually mm-hmm. wants... Turn, you know, he wants to annex 60% of the West Bank and then maintain the status quo as it is. That's his vision for, for the next five decades. And, you know, the, the bad news with that scenario is that, as you see, Palestinians are in the news when there's blood, usually not when they're blood, but when there's kind of violence or rockets or so forth. Other than that, people forget them. And so that's a scenario that exists. And it's actually one of the more likely scenarios that we continue to be grinded. And the scenario, the status quo scenario, and this is important, is not static. In in the last 50 years, over 400,000 Palestinians have been displaced from their homes. So it's slow ethnic cleansing that's happening. Yeah. That's what the status yeah. quo is. So that's one scenario. And that's, you know, the US even engagement in the region right now is built on maintaining that scenario.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. The other scenario, I think, which your your audience will be the most terrified by if i'm going to be honest is we do see the type of dehumanization the type of um, rise in fascism the type of acceptance of violence where i do live in fear that we could have a scenario of mass ethnic cleansing yeah where the settlers, yeah. you know that i mentioned the settlers living you know, on the hilltops. yeah we, we do
1: too we've we've thought of this yeah, yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it's it's a possibility um and and i think it it grows more and more possible as the days move by because you see the trends even you know the israeli military was never the most moral military in the world but they they had a kind of of strategy Mm -hmm. where they used what you know they would call things like mowing the lawn you know the type of psychologically well-designed violence and that kept them under uh, the radar of kind of Hmm. the international community's uproar but the israeli military is becoming even more fascist than it's ever been in its history Mm -hmm. and so this is the second scenario that's possible and you you know it's a big worry Um, Mm -hmm. and this depends a lot this is when we spoke about the interconnectedness you know depends a lot on how the international community engages with palestine so those are two scenarios the third scenario this is the more hopeful one that I will end with is uh, what I call the the scenario of liberation and the new social contract in the Holy Land that is based on the principles of freedom, justice and dignity for all. So a lot of conversation around Israel Palestine focuses on the like one state two state, three states and I think that that's a distraction right mm-hmm. that's that's a thing that people run around. Because you can have two states that are apartheid, you can have one state that's apartheid, you can have three states, and they've put us in this technical debate of what the solution looks like without having us discuss what the principles
3: yeah. that
2: the solution should be based on. But what we're seeing now for, for the vast majority of Palestinians in my generation uh, and younger generations, the focus is rights based, the focus is we want a future where everyone regardless of race religion sex ethnicity background has freedom and that's well defined has justice and has dignity. and i see a scenario where if the palestinian if this young generation resists strategically and builds networks we will change the balance of power between us and and the, the israeli government forcing the israeli government just like what happened in south africa to say, okay, we need, we need to dismantle the system. Mm-hmm. And then once we get to that power balance or shift the power balance, then we can discuss the social contract. Hopefully we don't make the mistakes that were made in South Africa, mm-hmm. but we learn from successes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, those are the three scenarios available to us.
1: Fadi, have you seen, since you know we're talking about the future again and the current events that occurred in Jake and Gaza, Do you see any changes in maybe the political international discourse or media that could be positive for this third, you know, uh, the third solution of uh, the liberation and the new social contract?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, and and it's stuff that's been fought for, you know, even I'll speak to, I'll begin with the official side and then Mm -hmm. shift. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you look at the U.S. government, um, and we all know the U.S. government's historic alliance, Mm -hmm. uh, Biden said something along the lines of, you know, Palestinians and Israelis deserve the same levels of freedom, prosperity, and security. The fact that you have a a president now speaking in those terms, right, same levels between Mm -hmm. Palestinians and Israelis, that's a shift, and that's not by accident, that's because of the lot of activism and a lot of things that have happened. But then on on the global scale, you know, we, part of my, uh, you know, part of the work I'm doing is we, you know, we just, you know, created a huge petition. Now it almost has 3 million signers to sanction Israel. In Ireland, there's a bill uh, that is close to passing. It needs one more vote. And if if the Irish parliament is is brave enough to push this through and to actually impose uh, criminal liability on trading and settlement products from occupied territories and from Palestine and other occupied territories you know that that will be a transformative success if that happens on social media Palestinians have been massively censored by Facebook and Instagram and elsewhere but at the same time you've seen you know Palestine became a global trend Uh, people saying save Palestine you had celebrities like uh, Mark Ruffalo and, you know, Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid don't count because they're Palestinians, but you also had <laughs> Susan, you know, Susan Sarandon yeah. and a broad range of celebrities have spoken out. So and then you have young Palestinians and not just young Palestinians, people like I'm, I'm sure your son, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who have just gone into the streets. So the the challenge here. So there there is this potential to answer your question, and there has been this, this change. That also includes human rights watches report and so forth mm-hmm. the challenge for us is let's be strategic and this is where i really want to name things as they are almost every after palestinian uprising and um, the solution that came the situation got worse so after the the first uprising the first Intifada, we got the oslo agreement which kind of helped establish and and impose the status quo we're under. After the second intifada, we got President Mahmoud Abbas, who was a puppet, basically, in the hands of the Americans and and, uh, the Israelis, and who subcontracted. So, you know, there is this moment of hope, uh, but we just need to build on it strategically and organize around it so it's not lost.
1: Yes, I think what what happens sometimes is that it cools off afterwards, right? After the violence, then it cools off. And I think this moment where you've you mentioned, you know, some of the, also the media, we've seen in the media, the New York Times posting, posting some things that we never posted before, even in Argentina, changing it a little bit, switching from having a one-sided absolute information sort of way to now portraying what is occurring to the Palestinians so one of the strategics should be not to let this moment cool down you know to continue with with telling the story from the side as well of the Palestinian or from the only side which is reality right of course there are different opinions and and experiences on both sides but there's one actual history right it's, it's one one uh well, not one actual history, but one uh, different events in one continuous history of what is occurring to the Palestinians. So,
2: yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right. And this is it's about not letting it cool down, but also not letting people burn out. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. this is the this is this is what the challenge we face, honestly, mm-hmm. as organizers on the ground is you want to keep the momentum high. Yes. You also want everybody that's working to exhaust themselves. So it's a very tough balancing
1: act. Exactly.
0: It really is. I mean, we face that actually in the United, I'm just thinking so much right now from what you're saying. We face that in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter. I'm sure you know that since you spoke to organizers of Black Lives Matter, but there are just so many um, folks in the U.S. who feel very burnt out and hopeless uh, because of, because there was this huge upswell, right? Yeah. This this uprising last summer. Um, and then there've been so many events since then that have has chipped away at what appears to be, it, it appeared to be big public support. And now there've been so many events chipping away at it that, you know, again, it, um, the public support seems to have cooled down to a point yeah. that it's hard to get people to rallies anymore, right? So this is, but, but you know, we're always reminding ourselves that um, that everybody's working in their own way to avoid burnout, right? So people take what they learn and take their new visions and their new strategies and their new ideas into new places, um, and and it can look quite different as it's coalescing and as it's building.
2: Yeah, and it's it's iterative. Um, mm. you know, I think you're totally right. And the, the way I like to see it is, you know, you're always building as long as you have a strategy. And you don't know when the dam is going to break.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, yeah. And so, like, I'm seeing one, one of the beautiful things in this moment in Palestine is... I'm seeing, you know, children. When, when kind of I started organizing, you know, kids that were 11, 12 years old, where we would have to tell them like, no, go home, you can't be here, and so forth. But who would come to protest? I'm now mm-hmm. seeing, you know, eight years later, um, like leading protests as a like mm-hmm. young teen, and yeah. you know, and they they learn from the experience and grow, and and no. the same thing, the networks we built across Palestine um you know over years are now suddenly engaged in the street in like within moments so you don't see it all this is i guess my sign of hope to people who feel like why isn't everyone in the streets right. is keep working and you'll see it eventually and it will be bigger than the last time yeah. so don't give up you know oh so i, I
0: think, think that's great
1: yeah and i think palestinians you know they, they won't be silent easily they <laughs> they they're, no, it's true. There are people that have resisted so much, so they won't be silenced easily. So, and, you, you know, you have our support with, you know, whatever we do, you know, yeah. we want to offer our support. And, you know, we hope that a lot of people listen to our podcast and, you know, read our statement and know that we are behind you. Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you one question? We're coming up on an hour, and we don't want to take too much of your time, do you know? But I do have a question now for for people who say, you know, one of the um, this maybe this is too big a question, but one of the issues one faces, of course, when advocating for um, uh, free Palestine is the fear that Jews have caused by the Holocaust, right? All over the world, not just in Israel, do you know? And sometimes I feel like Jews in the United States f- seem sometimes more afraid than Israeli Jews that I know, do you know? So um, just fear of antisemitism, fear of antisemitism in the US, mm-hmm. fear of antisemitism in Europe, fear of antisemitism in the Middle East and beyond. Um, but you know, my, my thought about that is, well, it's this transformative vision. It's going to be a multivocal vision, right? This is a, a peace process, a peace building process more than anything else. And, um, and, 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 and everyone will gain from greater peace. Um, but do you have thoughts on that do you know on how to address that and how to how to deal with the panic response that is so often seen in survivors of genocide, not just in Israel but but elsewhere?
2: Yeah that's you know I, I wanted to speak to that even before you asked okay. because I do think it's an important um, part of the, the conversation. And, and I want to kind of take take a deep breath and speak to the fact that the fear that Jewish people have Mm -hmm. is totally and utterly, um, you know, sensical. Mm -hmm. And I say that because no human who has experienced that or collective group who has experienced that level of trauma can just forget about it and not live in fear of it happening again. Mm And let's not be mistaken, you know, and not just the Holocaust, the pogroms, the Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism, you know, it's still happening, the synagogue that was attacked um, recently in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first step that everybody, you know, kind of needs to take is to not try to, you know, push away the fear or, you know, see it as a distraction, but to actually listen to it Mm -hmm. and to see where it is deeply coming from and what it is ingrained in. And it, that's going to be key to solving this conflict, and not only this this situation, but I think to other challenges that we face around the world. One of, one of the biggest, you know, and I also need to say that, you know, for us as Palestinians, oftentimes my, um, oops. sorry, I think I got stuck. Do you guys still hear me?
0: Yes, yep. we hear you. No, we do.
2: Yeah. Uh, so what i was going to say is the other point is that for many of kind of my my colleagues in palestine one of the big questions that they have is well yes we we understand where this fear is come coming from we understand this trauma but is it on us to try and heal it and solve it as an is it our responsibility to try and heal it and solve it and there are different perspectives on this my personal perspective is whether or not it's fair that it has fallen on us, it still has fallen on us. And it's mm-hmm. our responsibility to do that because that can be transformative for the world. And my my usual response to um, you know friends who, who are Jewish who, who speak to this fear and who I've discussed it with them is to say one thing is understand where the fear is coming from, and what it's directed at, mm-hmm. because if the fear um, can be easily weaponized, all of our fears, not just this fear. And if your fear is weaponized towards hating another other people, if your fear is weaponized towards making you believe that another people is inferior, or deserves less rights, then question if that's the right place to direct your fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I share the same fear of not ever wanting a genocide to happen again against the Jewish people or any other people. Mm -hmm. And I want to use that fear, which is a human response, right? Fear is actually evolutionarily Mm -hmm. important Mm -hmm. to figure out how to stop that. And what has happened in in parts of the Jewish community is that, that, that fear that is, again, credible and important and human and justified has been weaponized against the palestinian people and 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 by the israeli government by kind of certain far-right actors and our goal is to to work to change that fear to direct it at the real cause of genocides um which is essentially the types of oppression that that we are seeing and the other thing is to say is that the the second piece is that the palestine The free Palestine I want to create and I know the majority of Palestinians want to create and the future we want to create for the world is actually one that will make the Jewish people safer Mm. and more secure and live a better life than anything that Israel as it exists today and its leaders as they exist today can ever offer the Jewish people. Because if you think about it, although they have weaponized the fear um, that Jewish people have they have not in the last seven decades actually increased the security of jewish people sadly what we see is the opposite netanyahu the prime minister of israel is openly collaborating with anti-semites like orban in hungary and uh, you know with actively working with far-right actors like the trump government where you know, we know anti-Semitism under that government, you know, there were people chanting Jews will not replace us in the streets of the U.S. And yet, you know, Israel did not protect the Jewish people from that. And that's where I see the real threat coming from. And so those, you know, those are the two key points um, that I would answer that question of fear, although we can go in much more depth, but I'll, I'll stop here,
3: you know.
0: Wow, Fadi, this is, this is wonderful and so deep. and such a message of peace and hope, just unbelievable. I hope you will come back so that we can go in more depth, as you said, um, at some point. Do you know, I, we know how busy you are, but we would love to have you back on um, for deep dives into many of the issues that, that you have raised. Um, I've learned so much from you in this hour. I, I cannot thank you enough you it's
2: it's
0: my pleasure. Yeah, uh, me too, Fadi. Thank you so much,
1: and you know I love to talk about Hamas a little bit as well. But you know maybe we can do it next time. And what's happening in Gaza? So yeah, I mean there are that's... so many things that we need to cover, but such little time for for a podcast, right? So thank you so much. I mean I've you leave me thinking, so it's fantastic, and I think you've left everyone thinking in our audience probably
0: yeah is there any last thing you'd like to say to our audience or ideas of how folks can get engaged in a productive peace building way
2: um I mean first of all, I want to thank you both. I think this is a, a deeply important project, and the more people that listen to it not just this episode of course but all episodes, I think the better place the world will become uh so So please keep continuing this work um Thank and- you everybody. And, and I mean that, you know, from from all my heart. And the other thing I will end with is just to tell people who, who listen to this interview and I'm, I'm sure and I'm happy to like, continue this conversation and, and talk about Hamas and so forth is when people hear or, or listen to anything about Israel, Palestine, their mind is always ready to judge.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I would just ask people, you know, be present with the words you can judge later. -hmm. You can judge as you can be critical later, but try to actually listen—not just to me, of course, but to other Palestinians, Mm -hmm. to other people—before going into your judgment mind. Um, You know, I think that's key, and it happens a lot with us as Palestinians: is is people start judging everything we say without actually listening to it. And I just want to encourage people not to, you know. Wonderful.
0: That's, That's great. Yes. Yes. We second that. We second that, so for all of every, you listening, yes. keep your minds open, be, be quiet in the present, listen to what you're hearing from people, um, Palestinians and others all over the world who are facing oppression and trying to find ways to transform that oppression into something that is, um, that is liberatory for everybody involved, absolutely. I I want to add research
1: and ask questions. Mm. I think those are also two important elements. Don't just take what comes to you in the media. Just try to do some research and ask questions to friends or specialists and go search. We have so many tools now, like Twitter, for example, and many social media that can give us extra information. And talking about that, I'll repeat that, Fadi, people can follow you in Twitter, right? At
0: Fadi Quran right is that correct we will put it yeah we'll 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 put it on the podcast underneath the podcast so that yes everyone everyone can do thank you well thank you so much for your time we wish you safety and peace until we have you on again
3: thank
2: you and i wish you the same Uh, have a wonderful day and take care
0: you too thank Thank you you, so much bye bye thank Thank you. you